Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast, episode number 151. That's how professional, isn't it? A bit too clean. Have you been practicing that? No, would, I, haven't, I, I haven't. I would say you were practicing it in the shower before this, but as we've just found out, you haven't showered in the bath. <laughs> Don't. That was a secret that you were not supposed to put out there for everyone to hear. No, I'll tell you why. It's because uh, we did a quiz last night, and I had my quiz master voice on. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. How, many, uh, how many rounds did you do? Uh, I don't know. We had, well, we had six, but we had to come up with two per... per there's only three groups, but it, we only had four, as in we had six, but obviously I came up with two of them, so I couldn't answer my own rounds. Uh, okay, that's a cool way of doing it. That's a really long-winded explanation, wasn't it, for how many rounds we have? Um, <laughs> I did. I don't know if anyone remembers the game Buzz. No. It was... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm speaking to two youngsters now. That, that's probably why you don't... You are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are very young. Uh, <laughs> I am showing my age. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, there, there was a game. I think... I'm pretty sure it was on... I thought it was on the Xbox, but I got told it might be on the PlayStation, but I believe that is also a, a small detail which probably doesn't really need to be discussed too much. But it's a game called Buzz. It's like a, like one of those um trivia games um and that had a, a avatar character that looked like jason donovan and apparently it was his voice which was i found out last night and people were saying that i sounded like him from this game <laughs> my my quiz master voice so i'm sure someone somewhere can relate to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> what i'll tell you what i should do i should have planned this better and i could have given you one of my quiz questions because there was a couple of decent ones um Ooh. So pick one to 20 quick we'll do this very off the, this is very off off the cuff but very on the fly but pick one uh, one question from 1 to 20 we'll do that question go on, go on Ed oh. no, 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 you go, alright um, 18 18 is a geography question oh no you have oh. to pick the one that is an anagram which is, makes it very hard oh no what a shame <laughs> pick a different number quick. 14 14 right question number 14 which English city on the south coast which features a rural pavilion was named Britain's happiest place to live in 2015 Brighton Eastbourne. One of you are correct. And unfortunately it's Ed. <laughs> Which I... You don't. You come from near Brighton. Yeah, but you said Brighton, so I couldn't say the same answer. You're not supposed to say it wrong. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, had, we had some great questions last night. Some uh, One of the other people did a round on... Not, um, like slogans, like sales slogans. And they, that was so funny, like... Gillette, best man to get. Obviously not Gillette, but obviously they were just nice. real. And I was like, there was some bring back some proper memories on some really old really, slogans, really engraved into your brain. Yeah, yeah, that's the power of marketing. But anyway, <laughs> enough about my quiz. Um, Ed, yes, I said to you, you were supposed to uh, obviously lead this one, but I end up doing the intro somehow. Don't know how. Well, you know, you just naturally, naturally do it, don't you? Because you've yeah. done it for hundred and. 45 episodes or whatever yeah well uh, it's there's still a 50 50 <laughs> chance i get it wrong but <laughs> um so today we have a very special guest which you have already heard a lovely voice already uh <laughs> so we've got, a, we've got a friend of mine on um who is called delan um and she is a dietitian in a hospital so we thought that we would chat about we haven't really had have we had any dietitians on before Lots of nutritionists. We've, yeah, we've, had, a, we've had a few, a but Laura oh, nice. Tilt, she was a dietitian. Uh, T- El Tilto, uh, Amelia Thompson. 
Yes, yeah. Um, none other spring to mind right now, but there's no, probably been a... None from a hospital more. setting, anyway. Um, there were no. kind of people who've gone off and done their own things. So, no. so yeah, no. so we thought we'd kind of talk about that and then obviously talk about that in relation to what's going on at the moment with uh, this kind of virusy thing that's uh, caught, a few people have caught. Is that, is that, um, is that the technical term? Virus. Yeah, I think so. That's what the hospital <laughs> says, just this little virusy thing. <laughs> oh, hold on, we've got another one, one of those virusy things. um so uh yeah uh, so Dylan, do you want to well obviously i've already introduced you but do you want to sort of maybe go into how you got into being a dietitian and uh, yeah um well thank you both very much for having me on your podcast this is the first podcast i've done um so i'm Dylan. i'm a dietitian and i've been working for four years um kind of all across london and south london as well um currently i'm in a big teaching hospital in central London I'm not going to give names because I don't know if I'm allowed to um with with dietetics I studied a so the course is called dietetics can you guys still hear me yeah yeah yeah, yeah okay um if we, we, if we go a, quiet it's because we're so enthralled I see okay fine <laughs> I didn't know if it cut out and I was just talking to myself <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's a four-year degree and then once you are qualified usually the route that they kind of push you into is hospital-based work within the degree you do um, placements as part of your degree so you have to pass those placements so you go and work in a hospital to show that you're able to do so um throughout that I I went to a couple of big hospitals I went to the Whittington to work work there I went to the Royal London as well which was really interesting and then after that my first job I got as a dietitian was in Chichester which is um down south which was really good experience and a real learning curve as well for myself um this is where and, um, our, that's where our friend dr mike is from Chichester. oh really oh that's nice um it's really beautiful down there i must say and i really enjoyed it and the coast was really good as well mm. um so after chichester i wanted to desperately move back to london because of kieran and um, so i went and worked in the community so i kind of drove around from person to person's houses I did um care homes and things but it wasn't really my cup of tea so I only stayed there for about four or five months and then after that I went and worked at St Thomas's which is the hospital that the big Boris went to recently which is a really amazing hospital and I really really enjoyed that actually um there I did things like um dementia as part of nutrition I did some gastro um, I did some acute medicine which was again very interesting and then from there um, I went to the current hospital I'm at now and I'm doing neurology. So the hospital um, is specific for neurology and neurosurgery. So it's really kind of quite niche area. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, cool. so I deal um, a lot with stroke patients. So before all of the um, Corona little virus things happened, <laughs> um, my primary focus was uh, stroke patients. So, when people have strokes, a lot of the time, the first thing that will be impaired is their swallowing. So then it's up to the dietitians and speech and language therapists to devise a plan of how we can manage their nutrition if we can manage their nutrition. So I don't know if you guys have ever come across um, enteral feeding. Yeah, yeah, obviously we've never had to... Uh do it ourselves so with entral i don't know if all your listeners will know so entral yeah so the first stage would be um so a tube called a nasogastric tube so um a very thin tube is placed from the nose into the stomach where um you can 
put through feed, you can put through water and medication if it's crushed or in a liquid format as well. So if you can't swallow, then obviously you need to be able to somehow manage your nutrition and your hydration and medical needs as well. So they usually do that for patients. So and then if they are going to be in hospital for several weeks or months um, and the swallowing isn't going to be improved in that period, we usually tend to then progress onto a, a gastrostomy tube, which is a surgically placed tube through the stomach. And then through that, it's a much safer and a more long-term tube that we can use to feed these patients until they rehab and recover from the stroke that they've had or any surgery that they've had as well. So it's quite um, quite intense, but it is, it's a method that works within the hospital setting. So I'm assuming that's not a, a roast dinner whizzed up through a blender. No. <laughs> Uh, a Imagine. special mix of food <laughs> no just like yeah go home have your little cup of tea or whatever put it down the tube there are definitely people that do put down tea and stuff down the tube which you're definitely not meant to um, at the end and just with, pour it all in <laughs> yeah a bit, a bit of alcohol be fine put it well um with, so with like the blended uh, diet which you're kind of yeah, so the, with what you're saying would be a blended diet and some paediatric patients, the families feel really, really strongly that they don't want these formula feeds and they want to provide for their child. So it's quite emotional. So they will go home and actually blend some food up and then to a consistency that the hospital dietitians would agree that they can actually put the feed down the tube, um, which is an area that I've not really had to deal with. But I think paediatric patients... The, they have, you have to manage their family a lot more than you do with, with the ch um, adults. But the feed that we use at the moment, um, we've got a company contract um, with this massive um, American company, actually, where they provide um, bottles of formula that have already been um, composed and it's ready to go and it's sterile. So um, a certain volume of it will meet your full nutritional needs and you don't, you don't need anything extra. And then it's up to the dietitians to calculate how much calories, protein and micronutrients that you would need as well in a day. Is, is there... Um... So you say it was neurology that you yeah yeah. So is there anything kind of from a like a nutrition intervention that you use to to kind of support I suppose whatever neurological issues. I don't know if that's even the right term, but the like, no, yeah. pro problems that they have, or is it more a case of that? I guess the neurological issues mean they can't feed themselves. So you're just feeding them. Is there any kind of specifics? That... Yeah. So that, so both I guess um, with certain kind of um, neurology patients so something like um, Parkinson's patients you have to be a bit more careful with things like um, the amount of fiber you give them because the medications that they take for their Parkinson's actually causes constipation so you have to make sure that they're having enough fiber or you might suggest something like laxatives as part of their day-to-day -day because otherwise they're not going to be able to open their bowels um, and again with Parkinson's patients as an example they become quite malnourished as well because if they have a tremor or dyskinesia so they're constantly shaking they're going to be using up a lot more calories than say me and you so you have to encounter that into their day-to-day -day and kind of provide a high energy high protein diet for them to maintain mm. their their weight so it can yeah there are there are two elements to it yeah what other type of kind of like neurological diseases or do you kind of deal with ever so parkinson's being one yeah, Parkinson's been one. Uh, something else would be like MND. Um, we have hunting, Huntington's disease as well as part of a neurology. Um, we have an acute brain injury unit on the on in the hospital as well. So if someone's had a traumatic event on their brain and they've had to have a um, like a section of their um, head 
taken out to relieve the stress and the pressure from uh, the swelling of the brain, then they would also be seen in clinic afterwards as well. So there's a whole range of things um, that we have to kind of encounter. And sometimes I kind of wish that there was a specific diet for each patient group, but a lot of the time there isn't because there isn't enough research into it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it, to think that there's food we've had it around for years and doing that sort of feeding and stuff like that. I imagine that's been around for a good few years as well so yeah. it's crazy to think that the research isn't there. So. I, th- I think just just relating that like that 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 scenario even with like currently and the COVID-19 and cor- the coronavirus and like it's just amazing sometimes how little we still know about so many things. Yeah definitely um it's I think it We'll, we'll be learning from like for years to come after corona because at the moment everyone's a bit like we don't, we don't really know what the outcome is or what, what to actually do with these patients as well. Because it's almost like we've put people on the moon and you know we've, we've developed handhold devices that we can just like pretty much find out anything yeah. like within a second. You just assume that we know everything. Yeah, we know everything there is out there. But it's just that when you say like oh there's just no research into it and we don't we, you know there isn't a specific diet for certain groups like you just yeah as as a as a layman's person like myself or you know like Joe, Joe yeah, like, why isn't there uh, yeah you just think why not how do we not know this like surely we know this exactly yeah I agree sometimes there's it's a lack of funding a lack of interest from the government that they don't want to investigate into it because they don't see it as a cost benefit of it so what what are going to be the costs of them you know expanding the life of this amount of people because they might be they might have disabilities and again they might be a, a group of people that might be more reliant on social services so I don't know there's a lot of socio-economic problems that come with it as well but some things are more neglected than others but others get a lot of more limelight than certain groups of, of patients yeah so suppose the people that would be doing the research would be the people like who you mentioned who are making the formulas and stuff and then obviously that creeps in a whole load of bias and, and all yeah, that exactly sort of stuff, so. so sometimes um we we've if you use like a product we've had like if you use a product then they kind of encourage you to publish about it and say how good it is or how amazing the results were but again is it because of the product or is it because of the situation that that patient is so you can't really correlate the two so you don't yeah. want to give a bias so it's lots of cans of worms you know <laughs> yeah definitely definitely so in terms of you but patient obviously you're, you're dealing with your patient you're recommending what they should be eating mm-hmm. uh, and such so obviously it's case by case but um what sort of like recommended nutrient intakes do you kind of work on for uh, as like a kind of general yeah uh, approach so um dietitians we as dietitians we have this um we have a manual we have nutritional requirements so the current latest thing that came out is a penge so a pocket um guidance of nutritional calculations and estimates and specific um groups as well so within those we have regression equations so that we can apply to certain e- to each group of patient clientele as well so with the stroke patients if they've had a ischemic stroke or a hemorrhage then that will again distinguish how many calories that they should be um, taking in on a day-to-day basis Um, and then you can apply a a stress factor or a physical activity factor on top of that again and that will give you a number of calories but from there a lot of the time what our more senior dietitians might say is that's your starting point you have to obviously monitor and review on a regular basis to make sure that that patient is um, stable with their weight rather than um, reducing or increasing in a hospital setting and I say in a hospital setting we never um, want any patients to lose weight even if they're overweight I don't know how you two feel about that 
got to do what you got to do, haven't you, by the by the book? Um, <laughs> I bet you're tempted though sometimes to be like, well, we probably won't see you again if I just halve your calories. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes patients come in and I'm like, oh, you know, you lost five kilos in a week, and they're like, oh, that's amazing. I'm like, no, that's not the point. Please don't say that. <laughs> But they're very happy with the result and like, oh, damn it. It's something we talked about. I can't remember how how many episodes. It wasn't long ago. A few weeks ago, we were talking about, um, actually, it might have only been a couple of weeks ago. We were just talking about lack of of training and dietary intake for when you're in something like isolation, where obviously people Mm. can't train or or kind of create the stimulus as they might have done. It's no different where, you know, people are in a hospital. Now, if they are overweight, then ideally you would probably say to improve their health, losing some body fat would be a good thing. But I guess in a hospital setting, there's no guarantee that people can provide any stimulus to, to kind of help promote losing body fat and not lean yeah. lean, lean tissue, which is obviously going to be vital for them maintaining health. Exactly. So if you, obviously I would, if, if I had the choice and I'd obviously want them to lose a little bit of fat in, in that scenario. However, a lot of the time what does happen is that it, they have muscle wasting, which will prevent them from mobilizing and rehabbing. Yeah. So in an ideal world, we try and maintain their weight, even if they've got a BMI of 39, 40. Yeah. But that never really happens because that's on a huge amount of calories. And obviously, I don't want to be overfeeding the patient and putting stress on their liver while they're in an acute setting and acutely unwell as well. Is there much of a difference in calories that you'd recommend um, between the different, like I know you mentioned a couple of different bits between like strokes and stuff like that. Hmm. Is, is there a, depending on what kind of happened to them? Because most of them are going to be bedridden um, and, and stuff, stuff like that. So is there a big variance in calories that so, you with um with like the stroke and the so within stroke the hemorrhage and ischemic so if it's an ischemic stroke then it's a, a lower calorie so it's 21 kilocals per kg but with a hemorrhage it's 24 calories per kg and then with that you add a physical activity factor on top so just between the two types of stroke there's a difference mm-hmm. so you can imagine what other categories open up even further so with parkinson's i think it goes up to 25 um but there's some older equations as well that can give you 30 to 35 calories per kg but we try not to use them unless they're surgical patients again when they're they have wounds and they're healing as well so it can really vary between the two but for myself i use between 21 to 24 usually as a baseline and then monitor on top of that yeah okay that last part i was going to ask the question does that change depending upon kind of mm. monitoring because i'm assuming obviously bit like like any um BMI oh yeah that they obviously are get you in a, a, a guideline and get you in a ballpark but over time yeah. because of individuality across people i'm assuming you monitor and then potentially up or or down yeah definitely and um so we have patients that stay for several weeks and within those weeks you can see their cal their kilos going down each week and you're like gosh I'm I'm meeting them I should be meeting their requirements but actually they are more active than I've seen maybe they're doing a bit more rehab than I've seen or or witness so I'm still if I was still feeding at the same level that my equations were providing then I'd be massively underfeeding them so really taking into consideration the rehab and how mobile they are will affect their calorie intake um, the calorie requirements as well so we have to monitor we usually monitor once a week if they're going to be in hospital um, and then we take it from there and I usually would add on an extra couple of hundred calories to maintain their weight so do you get them up and, and weigh them regularly and stuff like that or how do you kind of monitor 
Um, so the what happens in hospitals is usually over the weekends, the HCA, so the healthcare assistants will, or the nurses that are on the ward will weigh them on a Saturday or a Sunday. And on a Monday when we go in, we obviously check the weights. But if we're really concerned about someone, we can um, get the nurses to weigh them again. So as a dietitian, we have a um, kind of a non-touching role. So we wouldn't ever go up to a patient and, and lift them up to go and weigh them because we don't have manual um, handling training. So we're not allowed to lift them because we don't know what 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 position or how to handle them so it would be the nurses and the hcas that would do all the weighing and things but again if they can't be weighed they can be hoisted so we've got these big scales where people can be slinged into it and then lifted to be weighed or we can use um muac so mid upper arm circumference as a measurement as a guideline for their weight and their bmi as well which are two surrogate methods that we could be using in hospital as well okay no, right. so, so it, then that definitely gets done pretty much every week. So yeah, yeah, unless yeah. they're like really, really unwell and on kind of death's door, then obviously we don't ask them to weigh them. <laughs> yeah, do you mind? Uh, I know you've only got a Sorry, few days. Um, but... <laughs> yeah. Is it really uh, important? <laughs> uh, you, you might be entitled to fifty more calories. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think they'll be too bothered with it. Fair enough. So, um, so yeah. So, it kind of day to day. Then, what's I know. Obviously, you mentioned there about going through um, the, the how you calculate the calories and stuff. But kind of, what's a typical sort of day for for you as a dietitian? Yes. Um, so I I do eight to four at the moment, which is quite handy. Um, usually, when we get in, I will look through emails and things, and then we have an online system where the wards can refer the patients on so what they use as a way to identify who needs to be seen is um, an NST score a nutritional screening tool so they will um, observe the patient and there's certain categories so if they have a lower appetite if they are uh, looking slim if they've reported that they've previously lost weight coming to hospital so there's all this criteria and then if they get a score of seven or more then the nurse or whoever's filling it out will have to refer to the dietitians and then we put them on a big database and then we split them between how many dietitians are around the office um, and then I will primarily take the stroke patients another um, lady will take the Parkinson's, another one will take the surgical and another one will take the um, intensive care patients. And from there, we will all work through our caseload um, and then space them out of when we would like to see them. Um, my my day-to-day is spent usually by the computer or on the wards, chatting to nurses, to patients, to doctors. Um, usually once or twice a week, we have a multidisciplinary team meeting as well where dietitians, speech and language, the consultants, um, OTs, physios will all join and we talk about the caseload of how how we're going to get that person home or if they're going to go home or if they're going to go into have rehab um if they have a gastrostomy tube which makes it a bit more difficult or if they have a nasal gastric tube again which makes it a bit more difficult as well so we have to work through the caseload of how to get that person safely out of hospital if that's an option okay so in terms of that when you say send them home they've, they've been in there for a few weeks or whatever in the well and mm-hmm. if they are on a tube um whether it's nasal or gastric um so do you then have to sort of recommend what what sort of products they should be buying or do you have to so have them off it there? all comes from the nhs <laughs> <laughs> so if they've got a nasogastric tube then they can't go home with a nasogastric tube because it's not safe because the way you check to see if the nasogastric tube is in the stomach is to aspirate it. So you pull a bit of bit, so you take a syringe, you connect it to the syringe and you take a bit of the fluid out to see um, the pH. And if it's below 5.5, then that means it's in the stomach, but sometimes not very 
um, frequently, what can happen is the tube can get dislodged and go into places like the lungs, which obviously is a no-go. So it's not a it's not a safe method at home, but in a hospital because there's all these nurses and doctors who can check regularly. Um, it's a it's a method of short-term feeding that we can provide. But if a patient has a a tube through the stomach, so a gastrostomy tube, then they can be set up to go home. And what would happen would be that the GP would would um, prescribe. Well, I would suggest what they would prescribe, and we can give them the feed, uh, bot- the bottles of feed that they would need, the um, the set of um, equipment that they would need, the pump that they would need, and everything, and can be set up at home. And we have community dietitians where we would hand the patient over to them as well, so they could go in and check every couple of months. And there's district nurses that would go and check every day if the patient needs it or they would go into a care home or a nursing home as well because as you know with a stroke it's a it's a disabling um disease as well so not a lot of patients will actually be able to go home if they had a had a big stroke Mm, definitely yeah okay i've I've got a um or or my mother's friend uh has suffered with leukemia for lots of her life Mm-hmm. Um, and she has now ended up on with a gastronomy tube, and she oh. she she gets some I don't know some form of liquid um, yeah. nutrition from from a GP or from from medical staff. But she told me a story not so long back where she had so much of it that yeah. and they kept re-prescribing them, and yeah. like the delivery people that did them round like said we can't take them back and just like left them on a doorstep. And at the, I, at the time I was like that feels like such a waste. It really is because these bottles of feed are actually quite expensive. Mm. So like um, that we have small nutritional drinks which can be taken orally, so sip feeds. Um, so one bottle of sip feed is around two to three pounds. So that's just one bottle. And if we recommend that that patient has two or three a day, then the cost really, really racks up. But in a hospital, because we have a big contract, we can get them for I don't know. It's like one to two p, so it's really, really cheap in the hospital. But once you go into the community and it's the GP that's prescribing, it's really expensive. So to hear that someone's got so much of it at home is really disheartening. (laughs) So do do they have to pay that for themselves, or is that something? No, no, it's all through. It's all through the CCG, the GP that would pay for um, that patient to be on these nutritional drinks or the feed that goes through the gastrostomy tube. Okay. Uh, is it something that you always try and sort of like try and rehab them off where yeah possible definitely and, because yeah. not a lot of people like them yeah they're not the best tasting things but if you think about it as like a medication then you can kind of make your peace with it but ideally i would be able to take the patient off the nutritional sip feeds as well and if they um the gastrostomy tube as well try to make it as as minimal as possible um cost wise is yeah. obviously going to be in my favour and in the NHS's favour. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So in terms of like kind of weaning them off it then, uh, I suppose weaning off isn't probably the correct term. No, but, no, yeah, uh, that is. Yeah, okay. Um, so to, to get them off, do you then go to sort of like a, a bit of a liquid diet and then kind of progress from there or...? So with um, weaning patients off gastrostomy tubes, it's um, mostly led by the speech and language therapist. So if the speech and language therapist comes and, and says that actually they can be on a on a level um, like thickened fluids and they can have a, a, a diet which is pureed then that's great but then we have to obviously observe for maybe three three to four days to see what portion of their meals that they're having and from that I can deduct the amount of feed that we would have to to give through the gastrostomy tube so I'm always just trying to balance off and it's more patient-led than 
dietitian led well not unfortunately it's good for the patient because they can um, justify how much they would like to eat and how much they're able to actually take in but a lot of the time um it's it's the it's the speech and language therapists that are able to provide the consistency that the patient is allowed to eat safely okay and with the the gastric feeding then mm-hmm. um because that bypasses part of the digestive system with in terms of like the the bits that go on in the mouth and everything so mm-hmm. when they're being fed do they just kind of like take in what you give them or do they have uh, the stretch receptors in the stomach must still be working and stuff like that so can they kind of turn around and say oh you know i'm full can you stop pumping that in or kind of yeah. small amount or so sometimes people do feel that they are so a lot of the time actually they complain that they're hungry rather than that they're full mm. so because it's over so we would feed them over 20 hours normally so it's majority of the day that they're hooked up onto this machine because if they're not having any rehab or mobilizing or anything then they're usually in bed so I can go at a very slow rate. So it's only maybe like 50 to 100 mils. So that's only a very small amount of fluid that is going into you. So I would probably feel hungry in that with, with that as well. Um, but if they say, oh, you know, I'm feeling really hungry or I'm feeling really full, then I can adjust it. And we have different feeds that can be lower in volume or feeds that can be higher in volume. Or we can suggest that they have extra water flushes through the gastrostomy tube as well to make them feel a little bit fuller because I know that, you know, they've been maintaining their weight for four weeks, they haven't budged and they're getting the amount of nutrition, but they have that sensation of being hungry. Then we can advise other things as well and um, with with it bypassing kind of the mouth and and the esophagus it would go in, it would by, bypass the sphincters as well so sometimes people might get a little bit of acid refluxy um that would be coming up but again because it's such a small volume there's not going to be masses at any time for them to be regurgitating it back up hopefully <laughs> yeah yeah hopefully <laughs> so how is your kind of your how has things changed since obviously the outbreak London's obviously the epicentre in the UK of uh, of the coronavirus and you've got a few more cases than uh, the sticks where we are um, <laughs> has your uh, ward changed much is it oh, you to, yeah yeah definitely so as I was saying before I'm primarily on a strict ward but now it's all just like it's all muddled up there isn't any um consistent kind of working group wise um so what's happened is in our in my hospital there's a capacity so we're split over two sites in my and in where we are there's a capacity of 800 beds at the moment and last week when the management was talking they said that out of that 800 beds um no sorry 900 beds uh it 350 beds were occupied and of the 350 only half of them were corona patients which is i think is quite a positive thing however what what that means for um myself and the rest of the team is that there isn't actually that many patients that are in hospital so it's kind of a quite quite weird calm we're waiting for this storm for this peak to come through of all these corona patients but it hasn't touch wood come through yet so just kind of a bit of a waiting game which is quite scary so they're kind of almost over prepped and over set up but obviously it's better to be safe than sorry but um i suppose like kind of one thing that i know was starting to hear a bit more in the news and stuff is people are obviously avoiding going to hospitals and stuff for when they've got like was it like a crazy drop in the amount of heart attack patients and stuff and obviously these people are still having heart attacks they're just 
not calling treble nine exactly so So people are still having heart attacks still having strokes but they're just kind of going oh it's fine i'd rather you know i'll be fine i'll just stay at home it's going to be okay the government has told me to stay at home but actually they're probably going to have some sort of negative backlash of this in a couple of months time or in a couple of next in the next couple of weeks because they haven't gone and seeked help it's not that the number of people having these conditions has dropped it's the people aren't actually coming to hospital because they're so worried about corona which i can completely understand yeah I guess well, I suppose... there's no routine other stuff as well going on. No, they've cancelled all kind of elective surgeries, um, hospital appointments and things like that. So a lot of the time they're doing kind of this, like Skype versions or they're doing telephone consultations. So they're trying to reduce the footfall as much as possible. But what that means is the people, so like with cancer and things, people aren't getting their treatments. So in the next couple of months or years to come, there's going to be a big backlash on the NHS and at the moment the NHS is obviously seen as you know the NHS heroes however I'm quite worried that in a couple of years or months time that we might become the villains because we didn't see that cancer patient and we didn't see that surgical patient etc. It, yeah. It's not going to last long is it the whole um, we love the NHS because yeah. that's the nature of people isn't it so unfortunately. But surely they um, would be they'd rather that everyone was prepared and ready for it than actually we were all you know, didn't, didn't, weren't ready for it at all and uh, had all these problems. I think, I think like, there's, I mean, I, I read something earlier around the Nightingale Hospital in Birmingham hasn't even had a single patient yet. My yeah. God. Um, and, and obviously it's literally an empty, um, I guess, pop-up hospital. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you do have to be over-prepared because who knows the amount of cases that's going to happen. Obviously, if they if they weren't prepared and then there was, you know, not enough ICUs or beds or whatever, then... And that's going to be a far bigger problem than having an empty hospital. But yeah. I guess like when you say, you know, less people are going to hospitals, more more people are, are or not having their, their kind of routine, regular stuff they would usually have. There's more virtual stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not really a surprise. I mean, I guess there's also the, the um, of a lot of the other hospitals are, are, you know, all of the original wards they would have had have now changed to Corona-only yeah. wards. Um, plus we've... I suppose oversubscribed on NHS staff, if for want of a better phrase, because we've asked so many people to come out of retirement to help and things like that. This isn't a normal scenario. Like things, no, when, no, when this settles down, it's going to change back. I think for people that are kind of thinking about this, oh, why have we got empty hospitals or all this sort of stuff? Well, it's because yeah. of those reasons. It's not because this is normal. It's because we've we've had to do something here to look after a very unusual circumstance. Definitely. So the the wards again, the ones that are open at the moment, we've. We're fully, fully staffed. We're all waiting around a little bit, like when's this, when's this going to peak hit us? But, you know, as I said, it hasn't, which I'm very glad for. But same with the um, London Nightingale Hospital. It had um, kind of, I think, maybe 17 patients a couple of weeks ago, and it's got a capacity of 4,000. Mm-hmm. So the amount of money that's been pumped into all of this, again, big, big magical money tree that I don't know what the end yeah. of it's going to be. Well, that's that's kind of the worry at the other end of it, isn't it? Um, you know, you put that much money and stuff into paying staff and setting up mm-hmm. all these things. You know, if they've got how many thousand beds in there, because I don't think they've quite they've not hit the capacity, have they, with with filling in terms of beds and. Uh, no, so the hospitals are still have beds available at the moment. For, um, all I, th- I think, as far as I know, all London hospitals still have beds available, but they've obviously had to send some patients over with Nightingale. Um, mm-hmm 
because there's staff there and they're literally waiting for these patients to come through. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose what it's like is what then do they do with all that that equipment afterwards? Because there's nowhere for it to go here. All the <laughs> hospitals, are, you know, they might be they might because they're new, so they might re- replace some of them and stuff. But yeah, um, well, I yeah, imagine they get stuck in a warehouse just. You know, it, gathering dust well well during during the um project silence that happened when they were obviously testing for a pandemic and showed obviously what people needed to do to help prepare for this one of the suggestions were that people should be stockpiling in warehouses ventilators and stuff like that which obviously we didn't do no. so <laughs> i imagine at least now a lot of the stuff that we have done then will help for future waves mm. of stuff like this mm. either that or they'll kind of donate or sell it to third world countries and to help their hospitals and such um but yeah um okay so kind of so obviously you, you've sat around a bit more then um but in terms of have you have you got any uh, coronavirus uh, patients on your ward so um on the stroke ward because it's all it's all changed at the moment i don't i personally don't but if we suspect that someone does have a has covid the um, fourth floor at the hospital where we're at, they've turned that into a corona-only um, ward, which is quite scary. So if you want to go up there, you have to put all on your PPE um, as soon as you step through the doors, not even before you step through the doors, actually, and if you want to go see a patient. However, um, a lot of the time, um, allied health professions are discouraged to kind of go onto the ward unless it's really crucial that they need to be on the ward. So we try and do a lot more kind of telephone advice or we try and um, advise the nurses around what to do if they do have um, problems and because we have an online system it's really handy that we can see all the medical notes or the blood results or the um, consult the consultants um, impressions and their diagnosis as well so it reduces the amount of footfall in the hospital which is really beneficial to preventing the spread of corona um, but with the with the ICU as well which is the intensive care unit that we have that at the moment actually is full um, so it's kind of two different spectrums that we're dealing with. So the ICU is really, really rammed. However, on the other wards, it's actually really quiet because we're not we're not having the same amount of patients churning through. Um, with the ICU wards as well, um, a lot of the time, as we've said, that people have to be on ventilators, so nutrition um, can be a problem there. I was going to say, so kind of what 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 are you uh, what what would how would the feeding process be yeah. what kind of stuff are you feeding them when they are on ventilators um so i don't work in icu have i ha- however i do have some knowledge around it um on icu what usually happens is people get fed over 24 hour period so with that nasogastric tube that i was talking about earlier um and they trickle through um, a certain amount of energy it's usually low calorie slightly higher protein because of the muscle wasting that patients have but again we don't want to overfeed our patients because that because that can cause more problems in the future as well especially with their liver um another kind of challenge for nutrition is patients get prone i don't know if you guys have heard of this term no no go on so um with proning what happens from my understanding is patients get flipped onto their front side so they are facing down onto the actual bed which helps with the oxygen oxygenation of their lungs so it allows a bit more of them to be able to breathe without a ventilator and obviously if you're laying down flat on your face then nutrition can be challenging with this nasogastric tube so they have to be tilted to a certain angle as well and with the proning so the turning of the patient you have to pause the nutrition for an hour before and after um, which allows for the gastric residue to settle and they can test with the aspirate to see if it's still in place so there's lots of challenges and kind of barriers to nutrition as well 
Okay. So, and then in terms of like, um, so they're obviously going to be bedridden. They're not going to be up and running around rehabbing and stuff when they're in ICU. Yeah. So, um, kind of what's the sort of like ballpark kind of uh, sort of calories are they are they working on? What kind of what uh, formulas are you are you going off for that? So I think um, my colleagues that are on the ICU are using ESPIN guidelines and ASPEN guidelines, which are I think around. 20 to 25 calories per kg initially and then again they will monitor but the crucial part of ICU is not to overfeed your patients so they will and they have algorithms on there so when they first, first get admitted there's like a, a standard amount of calories that patients will get and then our, once the dietitian goes in to see them then they can adjust and change it accordingly but initially they will be underfed from from admission. Okay and then they build things up after that. The, rate, yeah. the rates are quite interesting because they're not too dissimilar in what we would probably use with a lot of general population. Mm. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't. I don't think they would add like a massive stress factor or a, or a, a physical activity factor, depending on if they're ventilated or non-ventilated mm-hmm. as well. So I think just you know, for a for a general population person that maybe wants to go into a small calorie deficit to lose some body fat, you might. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might put a male on twenty-four or, or female on twenty-one. Yeah, and obviously then then apply an activity factor, but I say it's not too dissimilar, really. So how do you guys work out? So if I if I said that I wanted to be a client, would you? How would you work out what how many calories that I needed? Oh, she's interviewing us now. Yeah. To be honest, obviously you could just use some of the. It's going to just depend on the practitioner, the people, you know, what, mm-hmm. what data history you've got on someone already, because um, you could just use the Harris Benedicts or your usual your cunning yeah. the usual equations or to be honest you could just use a standard like Mets conversion. Um I'll be honest, I I mostly like to have some data if people have ever tracked before so you can actually get yeah. some data from them. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is whether how accurate it is because everybody lies. Um <laughs> that's true. <laughs> everybody lies. Uh but to be honest, I tend to just use yeah my 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 personal preference for most people is probably if I don't if I can't have any history to back to just basically base it on, I'll tend to just use like a met, standard Mets conversion of something like you know random ish number. Um, mm-hmm. Use my judgment of an activity factor. So it might be say randomly right. I'll just pick up a dude and I'll do twenty four, um, and then I'll just say right you're reasonably active. You got this job. You do this blah blah blah. Okay, that's about a. 1.3 1.4 activity factor and then just mm-hmm. anything else that i feel i need to know and then it'll just be a case to just try it for two weeks monitor body weight over time and then just adjust as you go because yeah. everyone's so the individual differences between people as you know just so so much so high yeah. sometimes um there is and you're no, like where are you putting all these calories like what, how has this yeah, happened yeah so you can't you can't just say right this is your calories and this is what you should be eating because it just doesn't work like that and we you know you're never going to get you're going to get in a ballpark but you're never going to get accurate enough to, to kind of unless you're just lucky to just mm. pick out but i mean even day to day the basis on a day-to-day of people's energy expenditure is so different in the real world compared to someone sitting in a hospital bed for oh yeah you know there is you, you can't if anyone that said oh i want to adjust my calories and cycle based on my activity levels that day it's, it's impossible to do you just can't accurately predict it so no so that's why so, the, so like the gold standard would be a calorimeter way where, where you could actually lay the patient down for 24 hours and measure the amount mm. of calories that they actually need but obviously because we don't have access i don't again i imagine you guys don't either no. then we have to use all these regression <laughs> equations I've got, I've got one in my kitchen do you <laughs> Um, uh, these regression equations are the kind of best next thing, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I do the same. Um, I have a Harris Benedict um, formula. Have you ever used Henry? I did at university, but I couldn't tell you. Like we we worked out at university. I, I remember the name, but I, I couldn't tell you how. That was something that I was maybe. I I think that was quite a good one actually. Henry two thousand and five, which was um, quite good because it it took into account your age and stuff as well. And then you had to obviously add an activity factor on top. But I thought that was quite accurate from practicing in the hospital at least. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, when you use use most of the popular ones within a hundred or a couple hundred calories they all come out pretty similar yeah and because again because of that difference in individuals it's kind of like just pick one and go with it and trial it it's, yeah you can make pra- like practicing so much harder just by trying to be so detailed with stuff sometimes when you, you're kind of just chasing your tail a little bit but yeah i agree it's my experience I anyway mm-hmm. I, I mean obviously you have to be so much more careful in a clinical setting than than someone just trying to lose some body fat yeah especially if they i guess not eating and drinking orally and it's me that's giving them all the nutrition then I have to obviously be very cautious so I would mm. probably go under rather than over if I can yeah because be honest what we tell people is is less important than whether someone's actually going to do it half the time in, in yeah kind of, in in our in our world of kind of dealing with gym pop and their their specific goals that's generally the issue is not really people knowing stuff is whether they're actually going to do it I agree I did a bit of um kind of weight management in my other roles and a bit of tier three bariatric patients as well and it was really difficult to because they at, at the appointment time would agree on this plan what they were going to do and small changes making it really smart and patient specific but then they'd come back in a month or two and they'd be like i haven't done any of it and then they gained weight on top of that and you're like ah, yeah. why <laughs> yeah we, we've, heard, we've heard quite a few dietitians tell very similar stories because you get to see people obviously infrequently um, yeah given this plan and then they come back and said, "Do you have not done any of it?" It's like, okay, um, it's a bit right? like physios, isn't it? <laughs> have you done the exercises? No. <laughs> oh, fantastic! I'm so glad you come back. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this, this, this why it's, it's it's almost so much more important to know around kind of the psychological aspect of things like oh, CPT definitely. therapy and, and motivational interview, and it's more important sometimes than knowing anything kind of from a more physi- physiological standpoint. But. Because you can throw all the facts at them, but if they're not going to take it in, then if they like chocolate digestives, then they're going to take it. Digestives. That's <laughs> And then you negotiate, you're like, oh, don't, maybe don't have the chocolate ones. And you're like, oh, what am I saying? <laughs> so you've just, you've just saved nine calories per biscuit, although they are eating 46 Ooh. biscuits a day, so actually I'm not having <laughs> It adds up. <laughs> uh, that's a good point, that is, though, about the kind of, I suppose, you, do you have to factor much of that in, kind of like the more the, the kind of the mental side of things with with what you do day to day or is it more just kind of like here it well especially with tube feeding so there must be an element of people are i'm not doing this or you know like the the pediatric side where you said where parents have quite a a stern view potentially on what their kids are being fed Um, yeah so um i pediatrics is something that i would like to uh try out um so i'm on a rotational post at the moment so i'm doing neurology but come october i'll get to go into something else so that might be pediatrics or oncology or um ib so um intestinal failure or something so with kids i would like to try but with the current um job role we have a psychologist on the stroke unit who is actually really handy and she can help with kind of more challenging questions and and discussions that you have to have but obviously we have patients who don't want the tube who, who keep pulling it out um which can be really challenging because obviously then they're prolonging the, the nutritional state 
not just nutrition, they're not able to get their medications, they don't get, to get any hydration, so then they'll have to have IV lines and get IV fluids put in, which again makes it more invasive, and if they're ripping those out as well, it can be a harm to themselves. Mm. Um, but then you have to take into consideration if this patient is actively pulling these tubes out, is this a sign that they're saying that they don't want any treatment, and especially if they've had a stroke and they can't actually speak, or if there's like a language barrier or something, then that may be the only way of communicating to say that I don't they don't want any more treatment so it can be really challenging and at those times we have to have kind of uh, best interest meetings where we call the family and if they have any or if they don't somebody to represent them that's um, unbiased to the situation to make the best judgment for them at that time yeah I bet that's incredibly hard yeah it's, it's pretty awful when you have to go into like a best interest meeting and the outcome of it is actually we're going to um, let this patient be end of life so um, make them palliative and take out all the tubes and invasive and allow them to eat and drink what they can if they can and take medications if and when they can as well mm. so then from there they'd probably go into like a hospice or something but or they'd go to their own home if they if that's where they would like to be yeah, that's uh, not a nice day in the office, I bet. No, it's, it's pretty sad, but th- yeah. it happens, and, you know, if it's if that's what they want, then at least they've had a say in it. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it becomes part of the job, though, doesn't it, if, if yeah. it happens once a month or once a week, or you kind of, I suppose, you become less... Kind of, yeah, yeah. Le- less affected by it than I yeah. probably was initially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, I, I did have a question. I, I was going to ask, that. and I think you, you touched on it a bit, but I would maybe just be a bit more direct on it. I mean, what's like the biggest thing that has changed since the outbreak in your kind of job or your role? Um, uncertainty. Like, we just don't know what's happening happening we don't really know how to treat the corona from a dietetic perspective there's no guidelines or kind of any um massive uh, information that's been passed down we don't know what to expect especially if they've had the corona and then they get to leave the hospital or where they go afterwards as well um the amount of patients that we're seeing is dwindled down to very small amounts so in a way i, I feel kind of useless at the moment because i'm not able to do what my normal job was before and, and help patients which is what i obviously like to do but it's it's just such an un- uncertain time in the hospital no one really knows what's going on we're all just waiting for this massive influx but it hasn't happened so just sitting around a little bit waiting so it's really uncertain and, and everyone's feeling quite anxious. We're all quite stressed. We're all stressed to go onto the wards because we think we're going to contract corona and then pass it on to our loved ones or even just like travel into work as well. So on the, the trains are obviously much, much less busy and things, but there's still people around. So yeah. you just don't know who's got it, who doesn't have it. If someone coughs, everyone kind of stares and is like <laughs> terrified of them. I, 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 I had a conversation with someone earlier who, it's a random story, but when I was walking earlier, yeah. Um, there's uh, a lady that lives in my village that I used to work with, so I know, and obviously, so we saw them, social distance, obviously, but we saw them, oh, so it's just spoke to them from across like a lane, basically. And they, we, we, we were chatting to them, and, I, and I, we were talking about how things have moved quite and changed quite quickly. And I said it was only something like the last week in February, maybe even into the start of March, that I was like still getting on the tube. Like I, yeah. I, was, I, I, I remember I got on the circle line, uh, central line, um, on one like ten a.m. The worst morning. line. Yeah, and like <laughs> missed. It was so busy. I missed two of them, and then when I finally got on one, I was like jammed in the doors. And I thought, and I look back now at the time, thinking that I wasn't really conscious of how severe or how big this problem was. And yeah. I look back now and think it was ridiculous for me to have done that. Like, yeah, hundred like, percent. 
to to think about where we are now. Like you're, and I think to what I was saying lockdown was like two weeks later or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's 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 mad really to think. Obviously, like you say, the at the time I wasn't worried, but now if I had to get on kind of public transport, I'd be I'd be I think yeah. Pretty... So I try and avoid the underground, but I get an overground train because I have to for, because where we live. But then I'll get a bus afterwards as well. So it's there's a lot of contact for me to I don't know. There's a lot of people around still and touching things moving around in London people coughing or sneezing around me just so much more aware of it than you were before so it's really anxiety heightening time as well I think when this first we went into lockdown I had quite a lot like trouble sleeping because I was really worried that I was going to get it and then I was going to pass on to like Kieran who's got asthma and things so it's just terrified for the people around you as well you mentioned earlier about having going up to this floor this coronavirus floor in your hospital around then having to put your PPE on um, mm-hmm. do you not have PPE for like home travel and stuff like that then or because no there's, there's plenty of stuff in the media around obviously lack of PPE in mm-hmm. NHS hospitals that doesn't sound like your hospital is so in the hospital we're actually I think quite good with our PPE so if you even if you go into a ward that doesn't have any corona patients you're still expected to put on a mask and gloves and if you want to go see a patient then you have to put on an apron as well so it's more to protect the patients from us than them to be protected so because we're the ones obviously lurking around and moving around but with travel I don't have a mask or gloves or anything like that and even if I try to buy any then I don't think it would arrive anytime soon and we're not given any by the hospital or anywhere else for me to be actually using it and I don't know because we don't know the evidence if it's actually any effective if I walk around London with a mask or not. I think the issue is a lot of the time is you can be really careful yourself and just, you know, just washing your hands and using yeah. sanitizer as and when you can. And um, it's the people around you. Like, so I've been just before we got locked down, I had to go up to Scotland and um, I was on the train and there was people wearing gloves and masks, but and then rubbing their faces under their masks, <sighs> wearing their gloves. Have you not, just have you not seen that like, meme? He's so thick. You see that meme? Uh, there's a dude in a supermarket, and I think it's an American one, but there's a dude in a supermarket who's got in he's got his gloves on or one glove on and he's, on, he's, on, he's got on his phone the other hand like texting while he's holding yeah. his trolley and his gloves hang out of his mouth he's like he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah, got yeah, his he's glove in his mouth, mouth while he's yeah. taking it off yeah. the text and it's just like you look at people like that and like they're in so like because i'm still traveling around a fair bit with work and stuff so um i'm up, up to york and around kind of the local area and stuff um and I, I see a lot of delivery people and they're all wearing their gloves and masks inside the, their cabs or their lorries or their vans or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always think, well, my cab's kind of like the, the safe place. Yeah. I know it's clean in there. I've cleaned it. And I know that I'll sanitize before going into it um, and stuff. So, but then when they're, they're obviously like, like, especially like, you know, DPD or Royal Mail or whatever, um, they're going into the warehouses with the gloves on touching everything and then getting into their cabs holding the but and then at some point they'll take those gloves off and it's just a bit like the thing that they've just touched with their gloves on it's ridiculous yeah yeah that's why i think quite a lot of the time is you just wash your hands you just be sensible yeah um, and yeah and you'll be a lot safer than all these drongos who are wasting buying the ppe uh, where it could be used by people who actually need it yeah 100% that's such, such an evidence based answer there Ed. <laughs> Like I, I, I did because okay. obviously we have a lot of blue gloves and stuff at work with handling food and stuff so I did bring some back obviously the shops are all closed so they're not going to need it um, so and I have got it in the car like gloves in the car and stuff but after the first week we stopped using them just because I started seeing all these things where doctors and nurses and stuff were saying you know you're not using them properly 
Yeah. Uh, so, also, I guess you have to you dispose of them when you move. Like, say you go to a supermarket. It's, it's just one time. Yeah, you've you've got, no, you you get, people just recycle, and you're like, that's not the point. Yeah. yeah. You, obviously, yeah. I guess if you go to the supermarket, like I saw, I saw someone riding their bike today with a pair of like blue looking latex <laughs> gloves on. And I thought to myself, I said to Jenna, I said, why are they wearing gloves cycling like down a country road? Yeah. She, and she said, maybe they're going to the shop. I said, well, wouldn't you put them on when you get to the shop, and then you take them off and you bin them when you come out of the shop? Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. But and then you go in and you touch everything you've just touched with your gloves when you're putting it in the fridge. So it's just, just yeah, it's just catch twenty two, isn't it? You just can't you can't guess, be hundred percent. Yeah, I guess it's just like minimizing risk to a certain point. Mm. Because they, yeah, 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 you could yeah. you, you, I suppose it's unlikely from what I've read anyway, I think it's unlikely to, to but you could catch it off a tin of beans that you stuck in the cupboard. But I mean that that's the thing like you don't actually know how long it lasts because there's research to say like 72 hours research to say like 24 hours depending mm. on the surface and the type of material but you just literally they don't know yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah. it's I all think, based on other viruses and yeah i think um hopefully when the summer now start well we've obviously been great for the weather but obviously get some uv light out and because obviously that's supposed to disrupt the viruses um <laughs> I don't know what technical term is actually. Yeah, yeah growth. Growth, lifespan. Yeah. Transmission is not really the word I'm looking for, but basically it disrupts the cells of some way, doesn't it? So, what I've read. You can tell I've read this and I know what I'm talking about. I'm definitely a Facebook expert. Right, you, you've, you've just taken that from what Donald Trump said. You'll be uh, drinking debt on that. Sorry. <laughs> No, no but I, th- I think I think it's, it's quite well established. Most viruses don't do very well in like UV light. Isn't that right? But then what's going to happen when winter comes and we potentially have this second peak of corona? Well, I think this is where maybe the Nightingale hospitals and stuff should hopefully, um, I say like it's a good thing to be used, but obviously the fact that we've we've kind of, I don't know if we have over-prepared, but the fact that we've got them there and there's people suggesting Mm -hmm. people using them, then at least there is some preparation involved for for maybe a, a worse wave. Because, I mean, you look at the Spanish flu and some other, the, the second waves were way worse than the first yeah it's not like we're gonna have a vaccine by then so i think we need to be careful anyway we i feel like we've slightly moved off topic because i know i'm an expert at this thing (laughs) because obviously i've got many 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 degrees and qualifications in virology and epidemiology and all the other things yeah all the ologies which i I haven't really (laughs) caveat that's a lie i haven't got any you wouldn't you wouldn't know how knowledgeable i sound though <laughs> um yes well um so Ed, did you have yeah. more questions uh no i think we pretty much like covered everything that we kind of wanted to talk about we've i suppose the only say again we've nearly hit an hour um so i suppose like the only thing really is what's the best ways people can keep themselves sort of healthy and stuff so is there anything nutritionally you'd recommend um or is it a case of a lot of what people are saying at the moment you know drink is this, this, is this like a corona specific corona related corona yes. specific. okay um so there was like the there was a bit there's an article slash um a research paper recently that came out about vitamin d and corona and basically how if you had a sufficient level of vitamin d then it would dampen down the uh, the effect of corona however this article since has been retracted and has not been upheld so the general advice would be unfortunately there isn't a cure or like dietary implication to have that will help with your corona but eating obviously a healthy diet like you guys would advise as well and keeping it as varied as possible is what we would all advise but unfortunately there isn't like a, a 
a cure or a special food that we could all have. So eating whatever these Facebook gurus are saying. I've, I've seen, I've seen, was it vitamin C or ascorbic vitamin C or something? Um, so vitamin C is quite, it, there's evidence behind that with general like colds and flus that it reduces the amount of days that you would have it or the symptoms that you would have it. So with vitamin C, then it is, it is advised generally to have lots of vitamin C if you do have a cold or a flu, but it's not specific to the coronavirus. So they can't correlate the two. But if you want to have an extra orange or an extra, you know, um, vitamin C tablet within your, within your obviously, levels, then go for it. But it's not going to cure you. No, I, I was trying to think of some of the other things I've seen that uh, people have been peddling other than like the, the garlic. Dish. I saw that. They, people were saying like yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Apparently that cures everything. Yeah, but I say there's just there's just no no research directly related to COVID nineteen no. or any any corona related virus that I'm aware of. Um, not no. that I've done a heavy, heavy amount of research into it, but not that I've seen. Um, I I would recommend. Um, we had her on a guest uh, a few a couple of months ago, but Jenna Machocci. Dr. Jenna Machocci, she's an immunologist, but she has been putting out some fantastic um, evidence-based information around corona and, and COVID, around like immune systems and, and that type of stuff. Um, nice. She did actually a really good one on masks as well, in terms of whether they're they're worthwhile using the types of PPE masks and um, the evidence that was available to suggest whether you know they are they are, they are worthwhile or not. So I would recommend anyone go checking her stuff out if, um, if okay. they want to find out a bit more. Um, yeah, she was a great guest. She's fantastic. She? Yeah, um, and I, I, got, I bought her book the other day. She's released a book called um, Immunity, which is uh, I what's she called again? Jenny Je- Je- Jenna. Uh, oh yeah, Ma- Machocci, which was M A C C I O C H I. Okay, Machocci. Um, I could just oh, go, I could just reach over there for my book shelf and get the book and read it uh, yeah. out, but... see it was uh what episode was it it was a few, a few weeks ago now wasn't it yeah, a couple of months uh... but um, just this it's only if you're interested just because obviously she's she's a lot of her content has been uh specific to corona at the minute um and she's just been putting out some really good stuff on it that i've seen so it was after we were talking about injuries wasn't we we did a bit of a botched episode on injuries well, and then she we, was we like were about, yeah we were talking about <laughs> nutrition nutrition for um injury prevention slash um recovery and obviously the there's not huge amounts of of evidence to really support much at all but we were um we were talking about inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory foods and we said look we, to be honest kind of inflammation is not something that we're particularly knowledgeable in and mm-hmm. obviously her being an immunologist she's got a lot of uh knowledge on inflammation so she came on and did a really good episode oh nice that sounds really interesting so it's only because it, it like it, inflammation and kind of health and body weight is just so misconstrued by so many people in terms of whether oh it's good it's bad oh you should never be, you should never have inflammation and just like, like yeah. lots of people just don't understand it and it's often peddled by by people trying to flog supplements like you know anti-inflammatory diets we've yeah buy my shake because obviously you've got chronic inflammation um when reality is like you know how do you even test that are they even testing it <laughs> that type of stuff so i um, love it anyway yeah M- i actually got it right i think m-a-double-c-i-o-c-h-i and obviously, Jenna, yeah. say obviously, J E N A, Dr. Jenna. So, 
to to wrap up then we've got mm-hmm. a few few questions that we didn't send you away um so they're nothing too in depth a bit lighthearted so um we thought we'd ask you those we always ask our guests some like random questions at the end um, okay. so uh yeah so uh, when was the last time you lied and got away with it Ooh. About don't say ago don't, with everything you said on this just now. Just now. Well, I've, never, I've never worked in a hospital. All of this. <laughs> uh, when was the last time I lied and got away with it? I honestly don't know. I'd like to think that I don't lie. Everyone says I that. won't talk to you and it's fine. Um, I don't know. Maybe when Kieran made like something to eat and I was like, oh, this is really nice, but I didn't think it was very nice not to hurt his feelings. Yeah, careful. I wonder where you're going then. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose for, for everyone listening, Kieran's Delan's oh, yeah. I've known Not for, just a random for quite, a, quite a while, one of my very good friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, let's hope he didn't lie and uh, say there wasn't pork in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat pork by there, that's the reason why it's funny. If you were a movie character, who would you be and why? If I was a movie character, is this who I'd like to be or who I think I would be? Uh, both. Okay. Um, I would like to be Jennifer Aniston because she's great and she's in a lot of movies. So that would mean that I'm extra cash flowing into my life because <laughs> um, she's basically in everything that I've seen. I think she's done a lot um, just out of Friends financially. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> she's pretty sorted, isn't she? I think I'd like to pick her because I'd probably be quite sorted by now and she, you know, her long-time lover was Brad Pitt so who would who would decline that I was going to um, flip the question around and say uh, we haven't asked but if you were to be in a movie who would you want to play you but probably Jennifer Aniston by the sounds of it Jennifer Aniston I mean you know if she's not too busy then <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough um, I had to read this one twice um, if you turn if you turn round <laughs> And in the doorway was a penguin with a moustache wearing a big sombrero and a poncho. What do you think the penguin would say? Hola, amigo. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird question. Who came up with that one? <laughs> I, I, I've just been sent on this by Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I found it uh, Brilliant. And um, what's the worst slash weirdest thing you've ever found in somebody else's house? Ooh... Um, the weirdest thing that I found in somebody else's house, there was, when I was in the community and I worked in, um, in, as a dietitian in the community, I went to this, to this man's house and he had like, he had his mattress on the floor and all around it was like lots of ashtrays and things, which was quite weird and quite disgusting. And his house was completely filthy and he had a, um, garden chair as a, you know, city, like that was his furniture, a mattress and a chair. It was quite horrible and quite sad actually, to be honest with you. I, uh, I, I didn't watch it, but I ended up watching it. I didn't put it on to watch. Right. So there was a program on, I think it was on channel four yeah. and it was called something like the sex shop. And I just had the phone on my television. <laughs> oh, I just turned it on. It was on. I, I put the TV on and then I was a bit, I was in bed. I think we'd just gone to bed and I always put the TV on when we go to the bedroom. And someone, um, I ended up watching the last, <laughs> um, I ended up watching the last 15 minutes of it. Um, and uh, it, was, it was following a sex shop in Brighton and they had a uh, sex doll for this guy and they delivered it to his house and it was a very sort of similar setup to what you've just said. Um, he had Whoa. two two deck chairs. Oh, I'm sure one of them was a wheelchair. 
Oh, no. The chair he wasn't in was a wheelchair, I'm sure. Wow. And he had this, like, blow-up doll, but not like a, you know, one that you get in the your, your seaside shop or whatever. It was, a you know, a bit more of an upmarket one. Uh, <laughs> and then he had spent... So, like, he lived in, like, a one-bedroom flat. Uh, like, I'm sorry, one-room flat. His bedroom was the living room. Studio flat. Studio flat, yeah, Thank but you. not, like, a nice one. Studio flat made it sound nice. Um and uh, he'd spent a grand on this new sex wow. doll. Yeah, it looked kind of real. If you were drunk, you'd have probably said hi to it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they delivered this sex doll to this guy, and he put her in this wheelchair. Um, and he just sat next to her, and they were holding hands watching TV that when the yeah they're filming him. Not it was cool. Quite cute, kind of. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> not so, on, yeah. that. on that note, we'll uh, have, we'll end that. Have, one, I think. Have you, haven't you missed the question? I thought it was a bit weird. Uh, describe how you would make me a sandwich. How, why is that weird? I don't know. Something weird. What? And, how... and asking someone what a, a penguin wearing a sombrero and a poncho would say isn't weird? <laughs> um, if I had to make you a sandwich, I would go mm, brown bread. I'd go butter, mustard, maybe some sort of um, beef, like sandwich meat beef maybe a little bit of mozzarella some cherry tomatoes and a bit of rocket and then again with the same bread i'd go butter and a little bit of mustard squish it together and then so that's actually sums up the sandwich that i've been eating all week oh there we go <laughs> what type of i discovered a new farm shop down the road and they've got some really nice um like thinly sliced top side and mm. uh, so having that with a bit of whole grain mustard and some mustard mustard is great with yeah. brand, like beef what, big fan what, what type of mustard um, like English, American, French, Dijon? Oh, I don't know. I think we've got some Dijon in the cupboard, so I'll go with Dijon. <laughs> whole grain. Whole grain, yeah. I like That's whole grain, I man. Whole I grain. like yeah. whole grain, yeah. yeah. I'm a whole grain, man. It's just because it, mm. that, that makes the sandwich very different depending on what mustard you mm. choose. And also, if, you get, if you're going like, I don't know, like an American, like a French's, as in the brand French's, not French, um, mm-hmm. you probably want like a pastrami or something like that rather than... Mm. And the top side, or you know, your standard nice. sandwich beef. Do I do uh, enjoy? Anyway, it. <laughs> anyway. do enjoy a sandwich. <laughs> well, that's. I uh, know. Oh, um, let's let's bring it back to something serious. Uh, I would say that's a hugely interesting episode, and thank you so much for uh, coming on. Um, oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. It's uh, it's obviously like cool for us to hear from a different perspective what you know a dietitian does in a clinical setting compared to you know us guys that work with general population really um it's like with everything that's going on as well it just adds a new new dynamic of interest if that's the the right way of describing it but mm. i feel like you know we're all we're all in the same battle you guys are at one at one spectrum and i'm at the other spectrum but we've all got the same um motive in mind which yeah. is yeah but just i would like to say uh personally thank you um obviously for what you do at the moment because um I'm not sure I'll be dragging my ass out into the danger zone, into into a hospital and doing it. So I'm glad someone does. So genuinely, Aww, thank you. No, that's very sweet. No, I, I actually make a point to say thank you to people in Tesco's because I think to myself, someone's got to work while I can eat. So Yeah, um, I try and thank all like the bus drivers that take me into work every day because I'm like, oh, this poor guy, he's ha- he has to be here. Like, he doesn't yeah, get a choice, does he? That's what I mean. But as I say, genuinely thank you because if it weren't people like you, then obviously our healthcare systems would not survive oh, so it is that's very kind. and as much as people will get bored of the clapping on a thursday night 
Um, hopefully, it's at least some concern there because inevitably people are going to be like, oh, "I can't be bothered to do it this week." Um, my life, the yeah. clapping. I go oh, pan. <laughs> you should you should stand at the door saying, "Well, um, I'll tell you what, how about clapping? Swap that. Get me some gifts. Bring me some gifts." <laughs> <laughs> There's been a few nice videos, haven't there? Just a the... sandwich, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a beef and mustard sandwich. <laughs> <All right. laughs> No, it's been really nice. Thank you so much for having me. I've actually really enjoyed myself. I was a bit nervous before I came on. I was like, oh, they're going to grill me. But it's been very nice chatting to both of you. Thank you. On that note, we'll say au revoir then, I guess. Yeah. um, Take care, both of you. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.